when we sell from that place of love, selling does feel easy. It comes from this place of we are here to serve our clients and customers. There is a sort of win-win benefit. There's something they're getting out of the deal, but there's also something we're getting out of the deal. This is Outside Sales Talk, the best podcast for outside salespeople. I'm your host, Steve Benson, and we're here to chat with the world's top sales experts so that you can get their best sales tactics to level up your game. Welcome back to Outside Sales Talk. Today, I've got Finka Yurkovic with me, and we're going to talk about how to sell from love. And that means eliminating fear to master the sale. Uh, Finka, welcome to the show. Thank you, Steve, for having me. Looking forward to our conversation. Absolutely. Well, by, by way of introduction, Finka is a speaker, a coach, and she's also the host of the Sell From Love podcast, and she's the president of Finca Communications. She, uh, she consults her clients with a focus on personal branding, leadership, sales, and client experience. She's also uh, the author of the Amazon best-selling book, Sell From Love, Sell Yourself, Your Client, and Love Your Offer, which we'll be talking about today. And I think that uh, you guys can, on, that are watching on video can see this here. I've got the copy. Oh, uh, there, hers, hers is, hers is a better view. Zoom Zoom's very tricky. Um, so I guess my first question, I think, uh, so your book is called Sell From Love, right? What, what, does, what does selling from love mean to you? So... When I think of selling from love, there are two ways in which we can sell. We can either be selling from fear or we can be selling from a place of love. When we sell from that place of love, selling does feel easy. It comes from this place of we are here to serve our clients and customers. There is a sort of win-win benefit. There's something they're getting out of the deal, but there's also something we're getting out of the deal. And there's also this sense of authentic integrity that you are showing up as your authentic self. You're not pretending to be anything else, um, but you're also aligned to your values, what you're showing up for with your clients, for your customers, and for your, for your organization and company. There's also this place of when we sell from love, we are also putting ourselves in our client's shoes. Um, we are seeing the world from their point of view. We are also looking to communicate from a very empathetic perspective. And then that third piece, when I think about selling from love, the place is that we're actually aligning to a bigger purpose than the sale itself, that there's something bigger and more important and more valuable here to offer than the transaction that you are facilitating with your client. And so when we take those three pieces around authentic integrity empathetic communication and, you know, having a purpose larger than this transaction, we are in this zone of selling from love. And what does it, what does it mean to love yourself from a sales perspective? What does it mean to love your client? What does it mean to love your product or service? Yeah. So when we are selling from love, there are those three pieces. We love ourselves, we love our client, and we love our offer. Uh, when we are selling from a place of fear, the place that we look to is what's the gap or what's the opportunity, because there might be a gap in loving ourselves, loving our client or loving our offer. Selling from fear is this place where, you know, either we feel like we have to push or pressure someone to do something that they don't want to do. It could be also fueled from this. I got to hit my numbers, got to make um, my quota for the week, for the month, for the quarter. 
And then we kind of forget about the customer and what's most important to them. It feels really self-centric. Uh, it also, from a corporate standpoint or an organization standpoint, it also feels very internally driven. You know, we got to meet our revenue numbers. We got to meet our profit numbers. We got to. And so again, all those things are super important when we're selling from love. But when we come from a place of fear, you see what happens. We're only focused on us for our, our interests, our sales quota, our revenue numbers, our profit line, and how many products and what market share we're growing. So this is where this whole notion of self and love becomes important because that's where you're going to get those better results, better profits, more clients, get more reach and have more impact. As a result, you know, the, the three things you have to be considering is loving yourself. What loving yourself means is loving who you are. And so this is you, you, the seller, the sales professional, the person that's putting yourself out there to get those products and services into your customer's hands. Loving yourself means loving who you are. So you bring some, you bring certain strengths uh, gifts, talents to the table. There's a unique way in which you sell. And that is something you need to own. You're not going to sell like everybody else. Uh, you're not going to communicate and connect to your clients like everybody else. And what often happens is when we don't love ourselves is we're actually trying, we try to kind of fit to, oh, look, look what Jeff's doing or look what Linda's doing. I'm going to do it their way. And it's okay to experiment and try new ways of selling. But if it doesn't feel in alignment or authentic to you, you got to actually pivot and go back to figuring out what works for you and being who you are. And oftentimes what happens, we get tripped up because it's like we, we try to be everything. And um, what I always look at, and there's a, 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 we'll talk a little bit about it, but when you love yourself, you own your brilliant difference. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about what that is and what's included in that. But what that means is you love your strengths, your unique talents, your gifts, and you love the things you're not good at. That means, you know, if I'm not good at certain skill sets or certain ways of communicating, or uh, you might be a person that's very expressive with your emotions, maybe you're a hugger, um, great, embrace those qualities. But if you're not, don't force that on yourself. If you're not like that social butterfly kind of, you know, networking a room, but you like those one-on-one -on -one deep conversations, own that part of your personality, own that part of your selling style. Don't try to do it the other way because that's actually going to feel inauthentic and your clients are going to connect with that. So loving yourself is all about loving you, but also loving what you're not and loving what you are. And then this whole idea of when we think about loving our clients, um, really being able to put yourself in your client's shoes and see the world from their perspective. Uh, again, it's how do you understand the world from their eyes? What are they struggling with? What do they most want? What do they most value? And what are they actually, what, is, what are they looking to fill? What dreams are they looking to fulfill? And then you kind of reverse engineer it and you look at your products and your services and you say, hey, I wonder how this product or service can help them get what they want. And loving your offer. So this is a biggie because this is often where we can get stuck. You know, everyone will say, yeah, I love myself. I got my thing going. I got my brand. I got my, you know, my value proposition. I love my client. I do everything for them. I over-service them. I, I give them everything that they want. And then they're like hiding behind their desk or they're not, you know, making the, the sale or things aren't happening. And it often happens where it, it, we get stumped as loving the offer. Now, in my work and in my research, when I was creating the Self from Love, uh, when I was writing the book and creating the platform and continue to do the research with the clients that uh, continue to that take the programming, what we've learned is that when it comes to putting our offer, 88% uh, of people do not do it consistently and 
connect with their clients on a regular basis when it comes to putting out their offers. So they are either holding back or they're not, they don't have a system in place to actually put those offers out there. And often it's this thing of, um, they might not love the thing that they're selling. And so that's where you got to love this thing that you're selling. And that's, those are the three pillars. Love yourself, love your client, love your offer. If you can tick the box on all three of those, great. Uh, that's when you're selling from love. However, if you're not getting the results and you're saying, yeah, I, I got it, I can do all three. I'd say there's, there's a question to be asked there. Maybe there's an opportunity in one of those categories at least. Yeah, that, that definitely resonates with me. And, and, and it maybe this is a, a counterintuitive piece of advice, maybe, but so, or I guess one you maybe wouldn't hear all the time. But I, some of my best advice for people who are sellers is to uh, join a company where you really believe in the product, you really love the product, because it just, it makes so many other things fall into place. It makes it more authentic to sell it. It makes it, it often you're more successful because frankly, people are smart and the best product often wins. Um, if you're if you're riding a if you're you're you're, you're you you do a lot of horses, uh, Finca. Like you you own some horses. If if uh, if you're on a bad horse, it's better sometimes to just get off, let that horse rest, and and eat a little ketchup, and, and go ride a different go ride a different horse. And, and get on uh, a different horse. It's so true. It's so true. And I know the struggle with like I I, I grew up in the financial services world, and I didn't always love the investment products or the mortgages that we were out there selling. And what you have to love is not only, so if you don't love the thing that you're selling, you know, one, figure out how to love it. The other piece of what I loved about the work that I did was that I loved the transformation, the impact it had on my client. And so that's sort of the, the transition state. Like I don't love the mortgage. Like I don't really get excited about, you know, five years, you know, 3.75 and all this sort of things that go along with it. But what I get excited is putting my clients in a dream home and making sure that they can sleep at night, knowing that they can manage their cash flow and make the mortgage payments. And so that's a way in which we can love our offer. You figure out what your client loves about it. And from that, that perspective, you fall in love with it. So you don't have the hesitation to go out there and make it, sell it and put it out in the marketplace. And I guess the opposite of, of, what you're uh, talking about here is it would be maybe fear-based selling. And, and that's, you know, much more around like, you know, using time constraints, like, Oh, we've got it or, you know, urgency uh, creating kind of uh, you know, much more pointing to the, the fear side of the sale, which, which frankly is, is how I was originally trained. I think more in, in, in my original training uh, years ago, but uh, I guess, Fear is such a powerful motivator with humans, right? Like the, the, that's often when you want to get, if you want to get people to do things, fear, be, them being afraid of something not happening or, or, or happening if they don't, if they don't take action, it's a great way to like get them up off the couch and get them to actually do something. How do you get the same results using love and using kind of this positive philosophy around selling? Mm-hmm. You're right. You know, our brain is wired to keep us safe. So anything that is triggers fear, we, it is like an automatic response. We are going to automatically respond to something that triggers fear because I don't want to miss out on that deal. I need to take action because I might not get that, or I will get that. So the way when we're selling from a place of love, we look at how do we get our clients to take action? How do they respond more proactively 
uh, and actively in what we're putting out there, we have to look at not how we're going to create sort of that fear of missing out or that urgent pressure filled sales process, but actually looking at your work as a way in which you deliver a transformation. So when we sell from love, we're actually facilitating four different transformations. The first is you're helping your client solve a problem. That is actually the most urgent thing your client is going to want to, you know, get a act on and get a solution. So if you can look at your offer and what you're putting out there, is it solving a problem? How is it solving your client's problem? That's how they're going to act. The second, which is the second most active one, will be um, how, how does it help them achieve a goal? So our brain is wired to fix things that are broken first. And then when I fix those things, or if that's not a priority to me, it's looking at, okay, how can I get that thing? What is the thing that I want to get? It's usually very short-term focused, very immediate, something that I want to uh, achieve in the, in the shorter term. You can also look at your clients in these two different perspectives. Certain clients are like half glass empty. You know, I've got this going on and they're problem focused. Solve these problems, solve these problems. You've got other clients that might be focused on half glass full. I want to achieve this. I want to get this. I'm looking at this. And it's all short term, probably, you know, immediate into the next three months. How could you solve those immediate problems for your clients? When we're selling from love, you what you really want to be focusing on, and this is what's going to differentiate you from everyone else because they're not focusing on these two other transformations is understanding what your client values. Do they value family? Do they value balance? Do they value freedom, money, time? What are those core values? And looking at your solution and your offer, how does it meet, manage and meet those? And the, the last one is, what are their bigger dreams? What are their big dreams and their visions and their aspirations? What legacy do they want to leave? What is it that they want in their life that right now they're saying they don't have time for? Or they're saying, you know what, I'll get to it someday. And you are the person that's actually caring so much that, yeah, I'm going to solve your problems. I'll help you achieve your goals, but I care more about you and what you want that I want to understand what you're valuing and what are your bigger dreams so I can figure out how I can help you get that. Now, you might not be able to always solve it with your product or your service. However, I believe that you have someone in your network Someone you're connected to, colleagues, peers, even some of your other clients that might be able to help your clients. And this is where you start using your network to support you in helping you serve more clients, but also as you help them get clients, they'll start helping you get clients as well. Does that make sense? It really does. And, I, and one thing that this triggers for me is the when you're managing a sales team, I think that uh, a lot of a lot of sales managers' favorite tool is fear as well, like the tool mm -hmm. of, you know, the, 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 the fear of being fired, uh, you know, the fear of not making your quota. I mean, I, I think a lot of the way modern sales jobs are, are structured are almost structured around fear and, uh, and, and sticks as much as they are carrots, right? Uh, the carrot of, of, of commission. Um, how, do you, how do you think managers can behave in a way to really let these types of philosophies flourish throughout their team. Um, and, and this is something that I, I think about with my team even, like the, the how, what do you think a, a sales manager can do to contribute to an environment where people can more live out your philosophy as, as opposed to some of the more unproductive sales tactics that we've talked about? Mm -hmm. So um, 
I will say that when you think of micromanaging your people or managing them to, you know, quotas, spreadsheets, results, um, you end up activating fear. Uh, it is a fear-based style of management. I won't even call it leadership because it doesn't even fall under the leadership umbrella. It is managing. And when you notice yourself doing that, you know you've landed in the land of fear. So can I tell a quick story of a absolutely experience with a client? So I was coaching this leader who leads, um, you know, has 20 account managers reporting uh, to him. And my role with, with him was helping him be a better coach. So when you think of yourself as a coach, oftentimes uh, coaching is almost like, yeah, I'm going to go in, I'm going to coach the person. And we assume coaching is, I'm going to tell them what to do, <laughs> right? I'm going to give them instructions. I'm going to give them direction. I'm going to tell them all the things that they're doing wrong, tell them what they can do to improve. And that's coaching. Coaching is not that. Coaching really is when you're coaching your, your sales professional, your salesperson, you really are one creating a, a, a space where they can hear themselves think, meaning let them tell you how they're feeling. Let them tell you what's, what challenges they're struggling with and let them figure out how to solve them as opposed to you telling them what to do. And so in this coaching interaction, um, the leader, uh, we'll call him, I was, uh, it, you know, his name is Jeff. He was leading, he was coaching his employee. And my job there was to observe his coaching. After the salesperson left, we do some debriefing on how the coaching went. And what was happening in the coaching session was Jeff kept telling, we'll call her Jane, uh, what to do. So, you know, I'm struggling with this. Oh, you need to do this. Call this person or, you know, handle it this way. And he kept jumping in, helping, 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 coaching. That was coaching and telling. So the employee leaves and I'm like, so Jeff, how did you think that went? And he's like, well, I felt like I was doing a lot of talking more than they were. And I'm like, so what was going on for you? Well, he starts sharing how he was afraid, afraid of that they wouldn't know what to do if he didn't tell them. And so I want you to think about, you know, so I'm like, well, is that true? Is that true? You know, Jane wouldn't know how to figure this out if you, you know, didn't employ your wonderful wisdom on her. And he basically said, no, I think she could figure it out. And so often what happens is as leaders, we fall into this trap of telling our employees what to do. And actually you're disabling them from figuring it out. They end up relying on you to tell them the answers to give them the know, the how to. And the other part of this is that Jane, then if it doesn't work, guess who's to blame Jeff, but you told me to do it this way. Right. And it didn't work. All of a sudden our team's um, responsibility on how to take action and how to solve their own problems and how to get the deal done. They all of a sudden uh, don't take that responsibility. And so I, I sent Jeff home with some homework and I said, what's the worst that would happen if you didn't tell them what to do? And so this is the subtle, these are the subtle tones we have to be listening for, because this is what's happening, why we want to micromanage, why we want to control and why we want to tell people what to do. So Jeff went and that was a Friday and he gave me a call on the Monday and he says, you know what? I figured I know what, what, what was holding me back. And he's, and so the question I had left him with was, what's the worst that could happen if you did nothing, if you didn't tell them what to do and you let Jane figure it out and you just had a conversation, asked some really great questions and were a good listener. So he came back and he said, I figured it out. 
and what I would be afraid of. And he said, if I didn't tell Jane what to do, then that all of a sudden puts our performance at risk because he's afraid that she won't pull her weight, get the results, which means then he will be affected because he's responsible for the team results. And then what's the worst that could happen from there? Well, if she doesn't get the results, I don't get the results, then I don't get my bonus. And if it keeps going that way, I might lose my job. So you see how underneath it all, even though we are looking to help our employee, our sales professional to get the results, underneath it, there is a self-motivation of self-preservation that I got to make, get this person to do these things. And this is how fear is, is in this, in the business with us. At the end of the day, you know, we kind of explored again, what's the worst that would happen? What's the worst that would happen if you didn't tell her you didn't get your bonus and eventually lost the jo your job, what would happen? He said, well, I wouldn't have the funds to pay for the mortgage on my house. I'd have to sell the house and I'd have to move into my house out on the East coast in our beach house on the East coast. And he said, well, that's not so bad. And so he actually worked through the worst case scenario. And so this is, you know, fear was holding him back from actually showing up as the leader that he needed to be because it was protecting him from losing his job. But once he actually explored the worst thing that could happen, he loses his job. He said, can I handle it? Yes, I can. Don't have a mortgage, end up on a beach house. He might actually end up with a better life if he actually did that. Um, but who knows? Um, and he can come back. And what that allowed him to do was actually put fear aside and say, all right, how do I be a better leader, not manager, and coach my team by not telling them what to do, helping them figure out how to solve their problems and get the results and get the deals done? Yeah, and I, and I think this is not just in sales, but this is one of the biggest challenges around leadership in general. Um, man, when you're managing people, the the instinct to to jump in and, and tell them what to do and get your hands really dirty. And, uh, and, and I think that's a common error that people make. And, you know, there's a lot of names for it. Micromanaging is just one of them, but I think it shows up in a lot of places and it probably is rooted in fear. Um, but, you know, it, it, the, the risk here is that there's a lot of, uh, unwarranted pride in oneself, uh, you know, hubris if, in, in, in thinking that you can just glance at someone's situation and be like, this is what you should do. Really like, uh, you know, that, that sales rep's been managing that territory all year. And, you know, just cause you've been in a, you know, an hour long phone call with them once a week or a half hour phone call with them once a week, you, you probably don't know who they should call next. And, and there's mm -hmm. probably, there's a lot of things going on. And, uh, it, it's, I think, uh, it's hard to know so much about everyone on the team's job that you could just step in and do it better or, you know, step in and have all the answers or tell them what to do. And so I think you often, if you do behave that way as a manager, you you really risk telling them the wrong thing and actually damaging the performance because they are really closer to the situation. So if you if you've hired well and you've put people in the seats, you've got to let go as a manager and let them let them make the decisions and let them uh, manage things because. Uh, if you don't, you really. I, I think it, it, it's one of the most common mistakes I think in, in management and business across the board. Agreed. Agreed. I, I think it's just in life in general. I think it comes from a good place because we're all, we're all wanting to help. It's like, oh, I know what you need to do. Or, you know, this is, I have this idea. This worked for me. It might work for you. I had it last night with my daughter in the car. We were coming back from, you know, she was at Pony Club and we're in the car and she's talking about a thing that happened with a friend. And she's like, you know, it really hurt my feelings. What do you think I should do? And 
I was ready to, I'm like, nope, pull back. I'm like, I don't know. What do you think you should do? No, I'm sure this comes up in parenting. I'm not a parent myself, oh, but I'm sure it comes up in parenting yeah. all the time. <laughs> it, all the time. It comes with friends. It comes with our partners. It's like, we're, I know my husband, he's ready to help me fix everything. It's like, and so I need to preface with him sometimes. It's like, all right, honey, I got this problem, but I don't need you to tell me what to do. I just need to actually talk it out loud with you. Cause I know I can figure it out once I can get the noise out of my head. Mm-hmm. It's the same with our people. They just got to get the noise out of their head. And once they get the noise out of their head, your job, if you know, as a leader is you got to listen, stop talking, don't do anything, just be um, actively listening. Now, there's a couple of ways that we listen. We listen to kind of, all right, I know, you know, as Steve's talking, like, all right, oh, I know exactly what I'm telling him. And we're waiting for Steve to finish so I can just jump in and tell him what, to t- what I really want to, want to tell him. But there's also the listening where um, this, that, that's level one listening. Level two listening is I'm listening. I'm hearing all the wonderful advice that is coming in my head that I want to tell Steve, but I'm going to hold back. So you want to be yourself, your self-awareness of, ah, I'm I'm noticing, I want to jump in and tell, but I'm going to shut that off, make some eye contact to make me present and focus back on Steve. And you're literally managing the voices. You're managing the voice in your head and you're doing your best and your darnest to listen to what Steve or your employees is saying. The third level is really then that active present based listening is you might notice some chatter. You can quickly put it aside. I'm listening to Steve and not only am I listening to what Steve is saying, I'm actually listening to the emotion, the tone and what Steve is not saying. That is, I'm just getting this much thinking about like that is deep, thoughtful leadership listening. Um, I think we could all use a little training in both psychology and journalism and uh, employ some of those skills as, as salespeople. Agreed. Agreed. One of the things I came across this study that the uh, rain group had done and they had done a study on, on what are the most important skills. And what they discovered was that listening is one first, even a LinkedIn study, LinkedIn, um, one of the most undervalued skills that, sales organizations put on their hiring list, but it's in the top three of what customers and clients want most. And in this uh, study, they said that the best, highest performing sales professionals listen 64% of the time, whereas the non low performers, so the non-performers, low performers, they are doing 72% of the talking. That makes sense. Yeah. And so, you know, sometimes, oftentimes we think, you know, especially if we're in, in a new territory, new clients, we got to prove ourselves. We got to present ourselves. We think we got to do all this talking. Actually, the less talking you do and the more talking your customers and clients are doing, the better experience you're going to get from your customers. And in that same study, they said customers had said that only 26% of sales professionals do a good job of listening, but it determines, I think it was close to 70% of their buying decision. So they care about how we listen. We can be saying, yeah, I'm a good listener. Like in my studies, I'll ask my, my students, how are you a good listener? Yes, I am. I'm an excellent listener. And then we go through the course and it's like, oh no, I didn't, I thought I was a good listener. I'm not <laughs> because we don't recognize that we're not a good listener. We think we are. And if you're not getting your results, or if you're doing most of the talking in your client conversations, then you're not listening well. 
One of the things, one of the telltale signs is um, silence in a conversation. So can you hold silence? Meaning you ask a question for your client uh, and your client doesn't respond immediately. And in your brain, you're like, oh, they probably don't understand what I just said. Uh, they probably need clarity. Okay. And then you jump in and you ask three more questions or you try to answer it for them. Like I meant this or like, that's not like, we're so uncomfortable with silence and being quiet. And so how do you know if you're a good listener? If when there is moments of silence in the conversation, meaning you ask a really powerful question to your client and you give them space to actually process that question and you squirm in that seat and you don't open your mouth. This is what master negotiators like have mastered. They allow the silence to be there and they're comfortable. It's like, that's okay. I'll let you squirm. You know, I'll let you figure this out. Um, you know, back to my, my coaching, you know, I coach leaders. They're so quick to jump in. They ask a question of their employee when they're coaching them, they're doing their sales coaching and their employee gives them like that, you know, deer in headlights look like, what, you know, and they're like, oh, they seem confused. So they jump in and try to fill it up with more words or more clarity. And they just like ruin the moment because that person was having and going up in their brain, trying to find the right answer. And we interrupt that flow. And that's the thing we need to stop doing. Whether it's a leader coaching your team, ask your great question, stop talking. You squirm while they squirm. The same thing if you're a sales professional and you ask that fantastic question, give your clients some time and space to think about it. It's uncomfortable. Uh, one of uh, a, a client of mine, he said he would sit on it. He talks with his hands. So he goes, I sit on my hands. So that way it would force me to not be, not talk <laughs> as a way to just like not talk, sit on my hands. Um, so he wouldn't jump in and, and fill up the space. Yeah. I, I had a great sales manager when I, back when I worked at Google years ago, they would, when we were on like a, a, a conference call with a customer, he was all, I was always going to say another thing and he would hold up his hand, one finger, wait, wait, he would just leave it there, <laughs> shushing me with his finger. And, 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 and then the customer would talk, right? And, and I think this, it all makes, it, it makes perfect sense, right? Like a, it, when you're, you, you know, a, a, a salesperson is comfortable talking about their product, they're comfortable talking about, you know, the features and the speeds and the feeds and, and it's something that they've talked about a million times. They know the, they're, they're subject matter experts. It's, it feels much more contained and, and much safer to stay discussing those things. If, it's, if you're asking open-ended questions, if you're allowing the customer to talk uh, about the things they want to talk about, their problems, you're on much, it's cur there's curveballs coming out of those conversations. You don't know what they're going to say. You don't know what the direction the, call, the conversation is going to go in as well. But the best reps allow that to happen and they don't they don't talk about the features and the speeds and feeds and stuff they want to talk about for 65 percent of the call they let the customer talk about the stuff they want to talk about for 65 percent of the call and then you map your products to those problems and challenges that have come up as the customer was talking exactly and so if you find yourself you know running into talking about products features price and all that detail that's the transactional detail of your offer that and if that's the crutch and the safety zone you know you are selling from fear because you're doing everything to make it safe for yourself yeah we can sell from love and still be afraid meaning you can still feel uncomfortable and still feel fear like 
I sell from love and I will say it's not always comfortable, <laughs> meaning, you know, I'll, I have to put myself out there. I've got to do a webinar. I've got to do, um, you know, a LinkedIn live, whatever that might be to promote or position a solution or a product. And if I love it and I'm excited about it, yeah, there's going to still be a bit of edge. I still can have fear, especially in high stakes environments. I still have some deep seated programming around pleasing, perfection, performing, and proving. This is like corporate stuff that is like in my, it's been DNA programmed in me for the last two decades. I still working through that stuff, but it doesn't mean when we still show up to sell from love, we still figure out, even if I fail miserably, even if I sell from fear, I will love myself anyway. I'm going to show up and do the best thing that I can for my client. I might, you know, uh, jump in and do more talking than I want to, but I'm going to do my best today to try to talk less. Um, when it comes to our offer, you know, I don't yet love this thing that I'm selling, but I'm going to give myself, you know, the next six months and I'm going to put it out there 10 times a week. And if I can't love it, I'm going to figure out another way to do this. Um, and so there's this place of, we can sell from love and still be afraid, but the intention is I'm going to figure out, I'm going to love myself. Even if I feel miserably, I'm going to put my client first and love them first before my needs and my goals and my quotas and all the things that I got to get from me and my boss and my company. And I'm going to uh, figure out if I don't love this offer, how am I going to love it? Love it enough that I'm allowed to, I'm going to expose myself and my reputation on, put it on the line for this product. Cause that's basically what we're doing. And if we can't do that, there's a gap. And that, and that makes a tremendous amount of sense. And, and let's, let's talk about uh, the, the impacts of, of what you're talking about, the impacts of selling from love. Like what, if you use this sales, this sales framework as a salesperson, what would, how will you, how will your performance be impacted? What about the sales team? How will the whole sales team be impacted? Or, or what about the, the clients? How will they be impacted from, mm -hmm. from uh, using this framework? So, you know, a couple of things. One is, you know, for you as a sales professional, I'm going to say there's, it's not that it's um, less stress. It's a different kind of stress. So you're going to be at more at ease because you know, you're trying, you're going to be putting your best foot forward. And at the same time, you've got this, you know, I'm going to say a container of love holding you because if you get it wrong, you're not going to be hard on yourself and you're going to figure out and you can get back on it. Because often what happens is when we have that inner negative critic in our head that you fail miserably or the client call didn't go well and you didn't nail it, you didn't say what you wanted to say, it didn't close. The negative narrative all of a sudden is like, you know, I should have done better. I could have done this. I wonder, you know, I, heck, you know, I'm terrible at this. I suck at this. It's not going to work. That actually pulls you back. And so your rebound rate of getting and picking yourself up faster actually slows you down. Instead, if you say to yourself, you know what, you gave it your best shot. You know what? I learned this, 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 I'm going to try this next time. Guess how quick you're going to get back on that phone and back in that car and back in your client's office. Back you on know, the horse. Back on the <laughs> horse. Off we go again. Uh, so from a resiliency rate, it's, it's tremendous in, uh, I've got a program that I teach, which is the, called the self and love Academy. And I ask a couple of questions pre and post programs. So what is an individual's confidence in their brilliant difference and what they put out and what their brand is, but also their confidence to put their offer out there and the action that they need to take. 
they often start with a before the course, you know, two or three out of 10 on a scale of 10. So one being not comfortable, 10 being super comfortable and the, and they end up with a nine or 10 at the end. So rate of return of, you know, kind of like 300, over 300% in certain categories, 200% in others from a rate of confidence increase in, you know, can I put myself out there? Do I know my value proposition? And can I consistently and visibly with confidence continue to put my offer and sell, sell, sell? Imagine what that result would be doing if you take this framework, sell from love and increase it by two to 300%, what that would do. Well, and you just mentioned the the brilliant difference. What you discuss this a bunch in your book. Hey, can you explain what a brilliant difference is and and how can a salesperson use their brilliant difference to their advantage? So I've been doing uh, personal branding work for uh, close to eight years. And one of the things about personal branding, one, I'm going to say, number one, it's important for all of us to do. However, the challenge happens where it's really focused on me, you, like the individual. It's focused on, here's my unique value proposition. This is what I bring to the table. Here are my strengths. Here's my, you know, me, me, me. It's all about you. Like it's, it's, it's. And so that was, it's an important part, but it's not the only part. And so I started working on how do we, can we make a brand a more holistic view? And that's where your brilliant difference comes in. Your brilliant difference is about you. It's your brilliance and it's about the difference you make. And so it's not just about you. It's also about the customer client you're here to serve, the problem you solve for them, the goals that you help them achieve and the results you deliver. And so it's coupling both of those things. It's you, your gifts, your talents, your personality, your communication style, your leadership style. That's your brilliance. And then we get clear on, okay, why should people care about that? Why does it matter? What problem does it solve? What impact does it deliver? And what process or solution do you deliver? Put it together and then you've got your brilliant difference. And all of a sudden, so what also was happening in, in the personal branding space is people shied away from showing their brilliance or their unique value proposition because it's a one-sided story. For many of the people that I work with, and I don't know, Steve, if you come across this as well, and for you that are listening, it's really hard for us to talk about ourselves. Like, here's what I do. Here's who I am. Here's my wonderfulness. And here's how I can help you. We so often um, deflect it to the other person. And so this is where your brilliant difference gives you an investment and a stake in why you need to bring your awesomeness and the superpowers that you bring to the table, because it's not just for you, because when it's only about you, that's why fear is not letting you share it. But when you know that it connects to a purpose and to a particular someone and it's here to help them, all of a sudden, it just becomes so much easier to share. You are like, yeah, of course, I can't wait to go tell people about this because they need this. And that's what your brilliant difference does. It gives you the, the confidence and courage and a way to, in a compelling way, communicate what you have to offer and why people should care about it. Uh, that's, that's, that's awesome. Um, the next section is sales in 60 seconds. So I'm going to, these are quick questions, quick answers. Um, tell me, how do you use the fear and love concept to, uh, keep track of your progress as you develop in sales? So, um, I guess two, two quick answers on that one. One, I have a fear love map. 
So I literally every day mark, am I moving towards love or moving towards fear? So I'm constantly indicating for myself where I am and my clients and my students do the same, where they are on the spectrum. Because if you can't be aware of where you are, it's going to influence and inform how you show up. Number two is um, often when I was in a fear-based mindset, I was so focused on the revenue sales number. What I look at from a, a love-based business, we're focused on profit and cash in the bank. <laughs> so it's not about the ego and yeah, I'm a, you know, I sold this or I sold that much. It's actually at the end of the day, we're looking at the full business and saying operationally, did this make us money? Does it make sense? And do we have cash flow and cash in the bank? Every public market CFO is just going to hate this. I love it though. <laughs> um, what, what is your uh, number one reason on why a salesperson who they should sell with love? You're going to earn more profit, profit. You're going to reach more clients and you're going to make a bigger impact. It's getting all three of those things, right? And what's one habit that sales reps need to stop doing? Hiding behind social media direct messaging, their computer, get out there, have real conversations with real people. Uh, um, the best thing you can do for yourself and for your business is talk to people. Yeah. I, uh, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and, you know, and this is obviously a field sales podcast, but most people listening are, are an outsider field sales. So they, they, they probably generally agree that the way to, the way to make sales is to get in front of people and get to know them and, and connect with them. Exactly. What, What's your top tip to eliminate distractions that prevent you from reaching your goals? Uh, it's this thing I call MIT. Uh, Most important thing. <laughs> you got it. You got it. That's it. Just an MIT. That's it. You know? Yeah. Um, and dedicate 20% of your day, 20% of your week, 20% of your quarter, your month, your year, kind of like that. At the end of the day, that's, you know, applying that Pareto principle on your MIT. Mm -hmm. If you give 20% of, you know, it's 90 minutes a day to that thing, wake up early, don't stay up late unless you are a late person because you don't, I don't know how much energy you're going to have after a full day, but wake up early, get that thing done and then give your day away. Give it, give it away to everybody else. But if you can make sure you have that 20% for that most important thing, um, you will, you will climb mountains and you will conquer all those hurdles that you need to conquer and get the results that you're looking for. Yeah. I, I personally totally believe in this. I, mean, I, I label what my, or I, I keep written down like in a, what, and I do it in a bunch of places too, but somewhere every day, the, the most important thing I'm supposed to get done that day. And usually it's four things, but like the most important, why are there four things on my most important thing list? But the, there's, the, it's a little, you know, a little list of this is what I'm really focused on right now. Everything else kind of has to fall to the wayside, but these are the things that I really need to get done. Um, that's, uh, I think it's really powerful to focus in on, on, on things like that. It is. I think also, you know, I I'll do it. Um, I've, I'll do it in the sign of most important thing for the year. And that's the thing that I'm focusing on for that year. So when it came to writing the book, 2019 was write the book. 2020 was publish the, publish the book. And 2021 is teach the course. And that's it. That, that's it. Like that. And that's it. And anything else, one is filler and noise. <laughs> However, our brain loves filler and noise. That's why social media works. Shiny object syndrome. It, it, it loves that. So it's going to keep us pulled away from our most important thing unless you assign it and you consciously choose it. And that is the bold move we all have to do. 
uh, because again, you know, for those overthinkers, uh, indecision makers, it's like, yeah, but I, you know, this and that I got to get all done. It's like, yeah, then you get nothing done. So your thing, four things, assign a thing for the year, assign a thing for the month, a quarter, whatever it is, but get it, assign it, make a decision and make it happen. And as an actionable takeaway, what is the, the, the first thing that the field salespeople listening today should do to start selling with love? Figure out what your brilliant difference is. You think you know it. You think you know what you're good at. I will say you probably, if you said it out loud, you know, every other person in your office would probably say a very similar line and very similar thing. So figure out what it is that differentiates you. Uh, figure out how to love yourself so much that even if you fail miserably, you can pick yourself up immediately and not need to, you know, berate yourself for three, four, five days and, um, yeah, avoid getting on that horse again. Uh, it's often sometimes people, yeah, I love myself. I love, yeah, uh, you know, I'm. That is the one that even if you do, and we get to the end, and you say you love, you're not loving your offer somewhere. We always come back to that. Love yourself, principle number one. Figure out what your brilliance difference is. And number two, when you get it wrong, don't be hard on yourself. Just keep going. Tell a learning moment and we pick up when we go again. We try again. Well, Fink, I'm going to try to summarize all the things you've taught us today here for in a couple minutes here. So first of all, you can either sell from fear or sell from a place of love. And selling from fear involves salespeople pushing fear on a prospect or um, being focused on working just to make their quota, right? Uh, if you sell from love, on the other hand, it can be a lot easier and smoother sailing because you can, you can be more authentic, you can be more empathetic to your prospect, and you can bring a purpose forward that is larger than just the, the features or speeds and feeds of your product or service. So the three pillars of selling from love include uh, first, loving yourself, second, loving your client, and third, loving your offer. Salespeople can learn to love their offer by empathizing with their customer and understanding what their customer or prospect loves about the offer. The self and love process allows for four different transformations. First, you're helping a client solve a problem. Second, uh, how does it help a client achieve the goal? Third, understanding your client's core values, what's important to them. And four, understanding what are your client's big dreams. Managers shouldn't micromanage because it tends to lead to fear. Uh, a great coach doesn't necessarily tell a salesperson what to do, but instead a great, a great manager creates a space for salespeople to share the issues they're facing and brainstorm ideas for solutions. Let them sit in that uncomfortable place and let them come up with the answer. Let your customers do the talking. And the more listening you do in a conversation, the better it is for your customers. Your brilliant difference is about you and what makes you different and why clients should even care about it. Selling from love can help salespeople be more resilient and confident to approach the next sale. This has been absolutely fantastic, Finko. Where can our listeners uh, read more about your work? What's the best way to reach out with you, out to you? What, how do they get in touch? 
So uh, you can visit the sellfromlove.com website and you can learn more about Sell From Love. You can get the book on Amazon. You could also uncover where you might have a selling gap. And so is the opportunity for you to love yourself, love your client or love your offer. There's a sell from love test that you can take and that gives you a full report on where you, what your opportunity or gap is and give you an action plan on how to close it. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, you can find me under Finka Yerkovic and I'll spell my last name J-E-R-K-O-V-I-C. We did need that spelling yes. and, we will def- <laughs> and we will definitely uh, include all these links in the, uh, in the show notes. This has been an absolutely fantastic episode of the Outside Sales Talk. If you work in field sales, you'll love Badger Maps, the number one route planner that helps you sell 20% more and drive 20% less. You can get a free trial at badgermapping.com today. And if you can think of any other sales reps that would benefit from learning the skills that Fink has taught us about today, definitely share the love and uh, forward this to them. Take care until next time, everybody. And and Finka, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having us.